This is the Horse Radio Network. This is episode 387 of the Dressage Radio Show on the Horse Radio Network, brought to you by Total Saddle Fit, Kentucky Performance Products, and Horsewear Grooming Tips. In this episode, we meet some of our 2016 Western Dressage Association of America world champions and learn their backstories. Plus, we will hear co-host Tim Christensen recount his road trip horrors. If it can go wrong, it will go wrong was the theme of his journey. And of course, we will have a training tip brought to you by Total Saddle Fit. This is Karen Abatista from Sarasota, Florida, and joining me is Tim Christensen from Mayaca City, Florida. And you're listening to the Dressage Radio Show. If you're a regular listener of our podcast, you'll recall that Tim and I spent a week in Guthrie, Oklahoma at the Lazy E Arena for the Western Dressage Association of America World Championship Show. This was a fourth annual championship show and this year we saw over 830 riders from all parts of the united states and canada now we know that western dressage is inclusive and welcoming to all horses and riders and this couldn't have been more true in oklahoma this year we saw riders ranging in age from 8 to 82 proving you're never too old or too young to compete and a wide variety of breeds. Uh, we saw quarter horses and paints. They were by far the most prevalent, followed by Morgans and Arabians. We also saw thoroughbreds, saddlebreds, warmbloods, Frisians, halflingers, mustangs, fjords, a gypsy vanner, some Spanish horses, and a collection of ponies. And I will confess, Tim will vouch for me on this one that the fjord almost came home in the dressing room of his trailer it was way too cute for words and speaking of trailers he was beautiful yeah he was beautiful and speaking of trailers you had quite the trip out there didn't you it was very eventful i yes it was (laughs) uh it kind of reminds me of a sequel to the movie planes trains and automobiles Yep, it was it was quite an adventure, but um, but it all ended well. You know, it was a, it was challenging, but boy oh boy, did it all work out in in a very good fashion. So. so why don't you tell our listeners a little bit of what you encountered from Florida to Oklahoma? Well, a little back up here is uh, one of my customers. Her her husband runs uh, some of the dealerships, and it offered to just go through and do a diagnostic on the truck and just make sure that everything was up and running. And so we had some things done to the truck and it was running just like, uh, just beautiful. So we were excited to go out there. Um, my truck's actually a little older truck, but I love my truck. It was my dad's truck and I got it from him several years ago. And it's just my, it's just my favorite truck. So anyway, so we were on our way out there and we were going to lay over in Memphis, Tennessee, which would be just, well over our halfway point, allowing us, giving us about an eight-hour trip on the next day. About an hour and 20 minutes from Tennessee, um, or Memphis, we're just kind of going up a a hill, and we lost a lot of power. And the truck just kind of slowed way down and was really struggling to pull the trailer. So we kind of just limped along um, for a couple miles and got up at an exit, um, pulled right into a pilot station that was there, and I ran in and told them what was going on, and they had said there was a mechanic right under the viaduct, right, right across the, on the other side of the highway, and that we were, you know, we'd be okay to get over there. Um, and we, we do have to say with, that you have six horses in the trailer in the middle of the day in the summer. And it's 95 degrees. Yeah. Okay. Yes. And we had left at 1.30 in the morning, and this was now do something in the afternoon. So we got over there, and... This was a small little town. Um, it was in New Albany, Mississippi. Um, these guys were not a big mechanics 
spot. So they didn't have all the equipment, stuff like that. After conversation with them, they said, unhook the trailer. And so we did. And um, of course, the horses are standing there in, in the heat um, in, the, in the trailer alone. Um, but they were all good troopers. After a while, we were talking and they were just kind of guessing at this and guessing at that, but they wouldn't be able to do anything till the next day. So while that's all going on, you know, you start to just start to get a little bit panicky because you're like, what are we going to do here? And they had no concept of the horses. Uh, at one point, the guy said, you know, well, what do you think you're going to do with them? Or, you know, you, where are you going to stay? And I said, well, I can't leave the horses. But we did have clients who are a couple hours behind us with a fifth wheel. So that would have been an option there. Um, so after we kind of walked around and they were going to get back to us a little bit, and um, Kevin had decided that he was going to go in and just push them a little bit more and they need to give us some kind of an idea. So he came back out about 15, 20 minutes later, said, we need to go to the Ford dealership. He said, this is beyond them. So I'd called the Ford dealership. He stayed with the horses and they were only about a mile and a half away and talked to the receptionist. And she had told me, you know, she said, it's real easy to get there, blah, blah, blah. Uh, She told me one little quick turn that was incorrect. And so I turned around Mm -hmm. and I said, okay, I see your sign. And she had, um, she said, okay, she said, I'll see you when you get here. And I got there about a minute later. And when I pulled in, there was the service station. It was called Community Ford, um, one service station, one service door to get in there. Um, three guys were sitting there waiting at the door. So I pulled up and they said, bring your truck on in. So I took the truck on in and started on what was going on. And they said, we need to do a diagnostic. And we're all talking. And while we're talking, um, they can tell I'm a little bit nervous and panic stricken. Another guy comes up and says, and interrupts us and says, sir, we want you to know that there's a gentleman in our town who used to have a horse show barn that he used to train horses. He's got a truck. We have made arrangements for him to come pick up your, your trailer and your horses. If we cannot get you out of here today. And they looked at us and they, they looked at me and then the manager said, well, he said, I saw your horses over there. Um, when I drove by that they were unhooked from the, from the truck and I figured you had a problem. So he said, we're going to do whatever we can to get you out of here today. But if we can't, you are taken care of. And my family and I, we have shown horses all over the country and we've had friends who've shown horses all over the country, but I have never had heard of that, that they had already made arrangements before we even discussed the horses. And then long story short, the, a lot of them had had connections to horses and so this gentleman that they had all recommended, they said, everybody knows him in town. He's a great guy. Everybody loves him. So long story short, the cart couldn't come in. They did the diagnostic, and we had a little computer thing that was, I think it was called the rotator something module. <laughs> and it had gone out inside, so we were only running on four cylinders. And they came back and said, well, we can't get it here till tonight. Um so, but they said, you can drive your truck to the motel, et cetera, et cetera. So they called the gentleman. We went back over to where the horses were, or I didn't. Kevin was there. And so this gentleman showed up with his son and his friend. His name was Richard Little. And he had quite a history in um, the gated show horses. And it, we, we just had fun. So Richard, they hooked up the truck and trailer. Um, Richard's place was probably about six, seven miles away. Um, we pulled in there. They had five stalls in us for the main barn. We had to put one horse up on his little barn up on the hill. And it just turned out to be just one of those great experiences in life, just to meet such an in- interesting individual, uh, meet his family. Um, they took care of the horses. Um, the dealership said, be here at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning, and we'll get you going. We got back there at 8.30 in the morning. They were waiting for us. They had us on the road at 10.30. Said our goodbye to Richard. Um, and just took lots of pictures and we just, it was just a, a lot of fun. So, but the story includes, doesn't end there. Oh no, that's only half. It, it, that's only <laughs> half of it. So we're now about 45 minutes down the road and now the truck is just running like a superstar. We'd had all new injectors put in before we left. Now we had this new computer module thing and it's just, I mean, really running with big time power and we're tooling along. Well, so you, we hear boom. And I thought, oh, we blew a tire. Yep. Yep. So there went the tire. So we pull off and we have three spares with us, two in the dressing room, one on the front of the trailer that had been there. And I thought, oh, let's put that one on. So I said, Kevin, let's put that that one on because it looks new. 
So we put it on. While we're putting it on, another gentleman stopped and introduces himself. Uh, his father was John Craddy, who was a judge in Palomino's. And we had conversations back and forth. And this it was his son, John Jr., I believe, who was on his way to the Court of Horse show in um, Tunica. And so we put the tire on the trailer. We put it down. It was a little bit soft. He said, you know what? I'm in law enforcement. So I said, I'll follow you to the next exit so you can just put more air in it. So we went ahead and did that and exchanged cards and conversation there. And he went on his way and we got the tire where it needed to be. And so off we go. And we're driving down the road about 10 minutes later. And I'm thinking, you know, that was an awfully good spare. And I remember my dad had bought me a set of tires for the trail that we had gotten. And they wound up being just not quality tires. And they all blew. And I thought, did we keep that one as an extra one? Because it looked like a good spare. And I no more than thought it and it blew. So we pull over again, get out another one of the old war tires that we have always carried as a spare, put that on. Another gentleman stops and says, hey, I've got horses. Um, just want to know, you know, just want to make sure you're okay. And I said, yeah. And I said, but you know, I said, I need to get a couple. I need to get these two tires replaced. I said, I've only got one spare left. He said, well, get off here at the next exit. Take a right. You're within three miles. Um, of a tire store. He said, go in there, ask for Carl, tell him Cameron sent you. So off we go. We find Carl. He can't help us. He said, the tire <laughs> you need, I don't have, but go 12 miles up the road to, it's called Gateway Tire. So we go ahead and do that. So we pull into Gateway Tire, you know, about 15, 20 minutes later, and it's super busy. It was a pretty large tire, so we parked down at the end. Now it's really, you know, it's hot. And the fun is not quite there anymore. <laughs> so I go in and <laughs> talk to the guy, tell him what happened. I want two, you know, two new tires on these, on these rims, blah, blah, blah. We come back out. He tells us he's got them. We come back out. He's with the trailer. Kevin meets us in the parking lot and says, well, we better get a third because the other good tire that was on that side is going flat now too. So we all walk around the other side and we see the good tire flat and the spare all both flattest pancakes. So we're so now looking at four. We must have hit something just before we pulled in. So <laughs> I said, I want four new tires and the two good ones on the left side can be the spares. So that situation there was we were so busy, but they, he told me to turn that trailer around, get it in the end bay. He pulled three guys off jobs and put them on, those, on the trailer to get us out of there. Um, so, you know, as you go through all of these things with all of these problems and everybody was incredible, you know, we just, it was great. It actually, you know, we laughed about it. Um, so we were on our way and we finally got to Oklahoma, Guthrie, Oklahoma late that evening. So that was a trip out there. That was a trip out there. Well, when we come back from a commercial break, we are going to talk to Helen Price from the Lazy E Arena and find out a little bit more of the history of the Lazy E. And we also have some interviews coming up and some backstories of our 2016 world champions. So stay tuned. She had waited all her life for this moment, dreaming about it since she was 10 years old. The trailer ramp touched the ground. He whinnied as she backed him out, swinging his head around to get a good look at his new home. His coat gleamed in the sun. Her love had arrived. She was breathless. He was beautiful. She could hardly wait to tack him up and start off on what she was sure would be the best times of her life. This love story is brought to you by Contribute, providing essential omega-3 fatty acids that help maintain low inflammation levels throughout your horse's body. The horse that matters to you matters to Kentucky Performance Products. Call 859-873-2974 or visit kppusa.com to order today. Helen, thank you so much for joining us today to give us a little bit of an overview of the Lazy E Arena. Um, Post horse show, give us a brief synopsis um, of how, how you guys thought it went. We thought it went really well for the first year. Um, from a neighbor's point of view. That's, that's excellent to hear. Um, we, we were so pleased. The exhibitors were just phenomenal and they were such good rides, uh, that their technical and their abilities were unbelievable. (laughs) And 
The weather cooperated immensely. Yeah, that it did. That wow. it was incredible. It was gorgeous. Yep. Yeah, I'd like to say that I had a hand in that, but no. <laughs> you can take the credit. That's all a lot right. of prayers were in it, though. I think a lot of prayers were in it, though. Yeah, but yeah, it did. I was telling someone today, it really was fun, and I really thought it gave. It's got its own flavor and its own character now. For the first one, for the WDA, they have a standalone show, um, and the the facility was really just. It kind of just grew into us or we just it was just became just so much fun going up to the to the arenas to show it just really turned into a good experience so um so anyway so we were talking a little bit is when we pulled in you know i i got in there i came in early and and you'd met me the next day and got in there in the middle of the night and did not realize how large this place was um so it was way more than a show facility um you know, with the the rolling hills and all the white fencing and the band of broodmares in the in the huge pastures, and that's when you and I had a little conversation. That it's way more than just a show facility, isn't it? It is more than a show facility. We actually sit on the Lazy E Ranch property. We're two entities, but really owned by the same same family. Um, the arena does public events. Uh, just like we did with Western Corsage. We vary anything from monster truck shows, um, Western Dressage. We do some team ropings and calf ropings, and we do managed shooting. And um, If we can find a good practical use for the facility, we use it. The best part of the facility is the fact that we do sit on that Lazy E Ranch. The ranch is a breeding operation on this part of the property. There is another 700-plus acres three miles down from there that allows our training facility for racehorses and our sales prep program and our yearling farm where we get to grow those babies before they decide whether they're going into the sales preps or they're going to go straight over to the racing barns. Uh, And when we talk about racing, um, that's quarter horse racing, correct? That is quarter horse racing. On the Lazy E Ranch, three out of the top five racing stallions on money earned from their offspring are sitting in our barn. Wow. That's cool. Very impressive. Um, And I think in our conversations, you had told me that you guys had won the big deal last year, the All-American. Is Um, that correct? They they won the All-American Futurity in 2013. Okay, so just a few years ago. And mm-hmm. for the listening audience, that's like the fastest quarter mile oh. in the world and the richest. And that pays, what, a million dollars to win? Mm-hmm. Yep. So that, that, that's a big deal. In the, It's a million dollars, isn't mm-hmm. it, Helen, for, to the winner? Yep. Uh-huh. yep. Okay. I thought so. I heard that. I just wanted to verify. <laughs> Yeah, so that's the granddaddy of the quarter horse racing world. And so when she started telling me that, I knew that that, that this was um, this was a pretty good player here in 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 the racing world. That's like the sugar daddy so, of the quarter horse racing, not the yeah. granddaddy. Yes. Yeah. 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 So a whole other <laughs> aspect. So how many horses and how many mares do they breed a year? Breed how many around approximately? Yeah, we breed twelve hundred. We full out. Twelve hundred mares. Yeah, four fifty to six hundred of them in, in the year. Um, the ones that are Oklahoma bred, that are maybe out of state owners or this or that, that have to be resident here, uh, are the ones that we are fold out. Okay. So and let me get that straight again, because I used to do a lot of the breeding. You're breeding about twelve hundred mares a year to these studs. And it mm-hmm. sounds like about 450 to 600 mares are fold out on the Lazy E. On the Lazy E property. The rest go home. Yeah. That is, wow. That is um, incredible. Um, that's very, very impressive. So the, the racing world, the, the breeding is doing very well, than it looks like. Um, so tell us a little bit about the training um, and the sales prep. The sales prep is, about- now, you sir, have a great reputation in the quarter horse world, where Helen Price does well, not exactly you. have that <laughs> reputation. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm known pretty well in the hunter-jumper circuit, 
So if I told you I had a horse for sale, they would think that I had a warm blood or a thoroughbred. But if I had a quarter mm-hmm. horse, it's probably not going to command much of a price. Now, if I go mm-hmm. to the sales prep folks, they take that horse for 90 days. They get it all muscled up and shined up and take it and spot it to the right auction. And they get a much better price for them. Gotcha. Cool. Um, and when is the racing, what, what are the dates out there? What is the racing schedule or their calendar? Well, our, the ones that, uh, that we take out racing go to several different facilities. It depends on where they're at in their training and what type of season is going on. Because they use Lone Star out of Texas. Mm-hmm. We use Remington. We go to Rio Doso. They use uh, Will Rogers in the Tulsa facility. Okay. So it's where so quite a the few best then. place to send them. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's just like everyone um, else. When you, when you do your show horses, you do the same thing. You kind of know that show or that um, what you want to put in that show. You may not want to yep. put your best horse in a B-rated show. Right. So you know your venues and, and put your horses in, in the correct venues. Mm-hmm. Um, so so we have the breeding facility, and and, and how long has the Lazy E been around? I mean, how many they years? They built the Lazy E Arena in 1984. And the reason okay. they built it was to have all eight PRCA events in one location. We hosted the steer roping portion. Steer roping is usually off okay. by itself. Um, the only time PRCA had all eight events was that year. Okay. After that year, they moved to Vegas with the other seven, and steer roping went off by itself again. So in 1984, the arena came in, and then so the 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 the, the breeding facility has been there was prior to that, I assume. Um, I believe Ed had already purchased Empire Jack and was starting to campaign him. Um, the original okay. barn and the original house is still here. Uh, other okay, folks cool. live in that house. Okay. It was built by E.K. Gaylord II. Okay. And he campaigned Zanpar Jack, got him a lot of world titles. We stood him as stud and then turned around and got him qualified for world to give him some more world titles for several years. And that, that was Zanpar Jack? Uh-huh. Okay, I remember him. And was that the, yep. did you say Gaylord was the, the original owner? Yep, E.K. Gaylord II. And, okay, and is that of the Gaylord Hotels? It is the same family that has the Gaylord okay. Opryland. Yep, I thought there was a connection there. With, I remember they were in the horses. Well, cool. Right. So as we look forward into next year, um, I know that you and I had briefly talked um, one morning there that um, – we too bad there hadn't been a farm tour. Is that something that maybe we could look forward to next year? I, I, I do we, hope we can put that in the schedule, and we need to put it in the schedule so folks can come over and see. I was surprised how many of the participants actually have horses that tie to some of the other horses over here in this breeding operation. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, it's kind of fun, isn't it? There was, yeah, there was one lady that has a dash for cash. A direct dash for cash. I uh-huh. was like, oh, wow. Yeah, we kind of like to talk to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's cross that with that Corona cartel or something. Yeah. Yeah, that would be fun. So, yeah. well, I sure would encourage you guys to, to work with the WDAA, and that would be just a great addition to the horse show, um, I think, from for exhibitors and spectators to have a farm tour. That would just be... Mm-hmm. Um, be just a lot of fun, a nice addition. So hopefully you can put that yeah. all together. Um, so yeah. We, yeah, we wanted to really concentrate on making sure that we had a, the right atmosphere for everybody to relax, uh, be able to prep their horses, let them chill out in their stalls, and take that all of that little burden off so that when they got to competition time, they were ready to go. Well, I think you accomplished your goal. I, I think it was enjoyed by everybody. Um, the the ride from the, just for the viewers, the listeners, is that 
the how far was it from the stabling area up to the to the show arena? Approximately. I know that because I walked it a lot. It's half a mile. <laughs> yeah. Half a, a mile. half a mile. But it was a half a mile <laughs> on a groomed trail. Because I walked eight lake. and a half miles a day. Yeah. Yeah. Oh wow! So it was just a, a spectacular little ride up there when we kind of came around the on the groom trail up there and, and oh, over it, yeah, with it was the lake. It was beautiful. With the it was beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah so. a lot of people go, "Whoa, that seems like a distance." But I've been at a lot of the other city facilities, and you can pretty much walk about about the same. About the Depending same. Yeah. Stall ends up. Yep. Yep. But you don't get trees. <laughs> yeah, it was beautiful. Well, Helen, I think that um, the overall consensus from what we could tell with the exhibitors and the fellow contestants is it was everybody loved it. It was enjoyed by all. And I think a lot of people are looking forward and coming back next year. Well, I um, uh, we're looking forward to having it return. And joining us, we have Sherry Beaudry of Canada. Sherry, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So let's talk a little bit about your horse, because you have a great story behind how you came uh, came to be with your horse. Yes, I do. I don't think my husband finds it quite so humorous or <laughs> exciting, but... Um, My friends were going to an Amish auction to purchase a couple of school horses, and they asked me to come along, and I, because it's the Amish, they have wonderful baked goods, I told my husband that I was going there to get him a pie. Anyways, uh, we got down to the auction, we checked out the horses that they wanted to bid on, and their horses went through, and of course they were above their caps, so they didn't purchase them. Just as we were about to leave to go to buy the pie, this beautiful Morgan Friesian came into the ring. I did not know a thing about him. I didn't even hear if he was a gelding, a stallion, his age, nothing. And I said, oh, well, let's have a look at this guy. And he came in, and he had this mane down to his shoulders. He had this beautiful eye, and he was just showing himself right off. And I said, oh, my God, I need this horse. <laughs> and the next thing I know, my, my hand is going up, and my friends are kicking me. Like, what are you doing? doing you don't know anything about this horse but i saw this other amish man across from me and he was bidding on him and there was no way that this beautiful animal was going to go pull a buggy so i just kept (laughs) bidding and then the next thing i knew i heard sold and i said oh no i'm in trouble because (laughs) at the time i had three thoroughbred rescues that i was trying to rehome i had promised my husband no more horses uh, and now I'm bringing yeah, home another one. That promise. <laughs> so at first I thought I might hide him, but I didn't think that was a very good idea. Mm. So I told my friends that had the trailer, I said, look, just give me a 15-minute head start. I'll get home, I'll break the news, open the trailer doors, let the horse out, I'll take him, and then go, because it's not going to be pretty. <laughs> <laughs> so all the way home and I had an hour to think about how I was going to explain this to my husband I'm thinking of the right story to say and, and what I did was I pulled up and he's standing there and he said uh, what's up and I said I did a bad thing today and he said what's that I said I forgot your pie and he said I don't care that's alright there's bakeries around here I said no I'm not done and he said, what? And I said, I bought a horse. And there was silence. And then he laughed and he said, no, you didn't. And then it was, yes, you did. Um, long story short, the man did not speak to me for four days. Um, but the day that he walked to the barn and saw this horse, he said to me, he said, that is the most beautiful horse I have ever seen in my life. And so, what is that horse's name? His show name is I Forgot the Pie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that is excellent. I think the first couple times we went into the ring, I think I saw my horse, or my husband cringe a tiny bit, but uh, now he loves him. And uh, he's just the most wonderful soul I've ever, ever owned. And uh, I don't regret one second doing that. And he came with a love note, correct? Yes, yes, he did. Um, 
when my friends said, let's go back to the barn and see what you just bought, um, we went back to the stall that he was in, and there was a love note on his stall. And the reason he had been brought to that auction was his owner had passed away. He loved the horse dearly. His name was Junior, and um, he explained that he had been a Sunday driving horse. He was their special church horse. So to me, that, that meant a lot because usually at these auctions, there's not, a, there's not that much love and care that goes into, you know, the fact of even putting a note up. So I thought that was pretty special. That is pretty special. And uh, speaking of pretty special, you have a pretty special story about you as well. Um, I know you first began riding back in 1969, and in the 70s, you were uh, quite the show jumper, but then your career kind of ended abruptly. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Well, that wasn't a very good time in my life, but um, it was graduation party for high school, and there was a hayride um, with all my close friends, and we were on the last hayride going out, and unbeknownst to us, the driver had gone into the house, and someone else had hopped on the tractor, and he drove us over a 25-foot embankment, and I was at the back of the wagon, and um, sorry, I'm getting a little emotional here. Um, I was thrown through the air, and I landed back down on the steering wheel of the tractor <gasps> and it um it did a real number on my fourth and fifth lumbar and it ended my riding career oh. i'm so sorry i'm sorry i don't mean to get that that's all right it's amazing that after that many years you can that was 1978 that you you can still flash back to it but uh yeah it was uh, it was pretty traumatic um my parents and my doctors agreed that even once I healed that it was not a good idea for me to continue in the equestrian sport because the chances of me re-injuring my back and and possibly being paralyzed for the rest of my life was was not a good idea. How long of a recovery were you in before you, I mean, were you in the hospital? I was I was in the hospital. Um, actually, for the first 48 hours, I had no feeling from the waist down. I was very lucky in some aspects that uh, that I was still able to function normally. I um, it wasn't as traumatic as it could be, I guess. But um, they weren't even looking at my other injuries. We, they they thought I had a broken arm and and other things that were going on. But they they were just concentrating on the fact of getting me to have this feeling back and. Um, that was basically the, I think the, I never, I don't think I wrote again after that until I'm just trying to think it was, it was in 1984, I think it was when I decided to finally get back on a horse again. And what, how did that go? I'm sure there was a lot of fear and a lot of, uh, mental anguish about that. I think what got me back on the horse was the fact that I looked at, I could, I could trip or fall in the winter on the ice anywhere in Canada, right? Um, and the same thing could happen. And, and I was, the thing that I loved the most in life, I was denying myself and I had to get back on. Um, it wasn't, there was no fear of actually riding. Um, I think my family and everybody else probably instilled more of a fear of, the, of re-injuring. And I got over mm-hmm. that. But now in my 50s, unfortunately, that injury's come back to haunt me. So in 1989, I decided that I wanted horses back in my life. And once again, not to my husband's excitement, I went down to the uh, local track and brought home a standard bread. And then I traded a wheelbarrow for another standard bread. (laughs) And I ended up with three standard breads in my barn. That um, he doesn't know how it happened, but the way I looked at it, he had built me this barn. He put four box stalls in. I'm going to fill them. um, (laughs) Way to shift the blame. (laughs) It's right. It's his fault. It's all his fault. Deflection. I didn't get back into the showing at all. These horses were just basically pets that I'd hack around the farm. And and then um, when my, the the one that was the closest to me, when he passed away, it, uh, 
it was really, really hard on me. And I ended up rehoming the other two to a very good friend where they've lived out their lives. And then I was out of it for until 19, sorry, till 2009. We had no horses here. I had my husband take all the paddocks out. Um, my stable turned into a shop, and that was supposed to be the end of horses. And then in 2009, I saw a thoroughbred mare that needed rescuing, and it started all over again. My poor husband <laughs> had to put new paddocks in and new stalls, and we started again, and then I ended up rescuing another thoroughbred and another thoroughbred and a miniature pony, and then Dar, I forgot the pie, he came along next. And, and how did um, you get to Western Dressage? I know, there's a long story in between there, isn't there? What happened was, um, when I got Dar, I forgot the pie, mm-hmm. he was, he's a small horse. Every other horse I've always owned was always 17 hands or bigger. So when he gained to my farm, um, he was only a three-year-old. So I spent a lot of time with him doing groundwork, that sort of thing, but didn't really ride him. I had, a, I had my one thoroughbred that I was using in Hunters, and unfortunately he, he came down with EPM and then other things. And anyways, he ended up having to be put down two years ago. But when he came down with the EPM, I had to switch my riding focus to somebody else, and it became Dar. We tried everything. We tried Hunter, and we were told as we came into the ring, this is not a dressage ring. Well, I didn't know anything about dressage at that point. I mean, I was just riding Hunters. And he had too much action. He did not like other horses in the ring. So we just sort of put things on the back burner. And then I tried classical dressage, and we did quite well our first two seasons. Um, We won, uh, we came in first for Ontario, which was, amazing because basically his training was well all of his training has been through me and um i thought wow we're 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 ready we're going to start moving up and then the back came into play and this is where the western dressage comes into play i could not find a saddle that i could ride in that would make my back comfortable i'm talking tears when i would ride the pain was completely unbearable and then, of course, the horse doesn't move properly when, when you know, if you're in pain, you're, you're not relaxed. He's not feeling the relaxation through his back. So he wasn't moving properly, and we were both yeah. miserable. So anyways, he was at, I was having to have hernia surgery, so I had him boarded at a dressage barn, and that's where I met Elaine Ward. She was there. He's quite well known in Canada, yes. She is amazing. So the owner of the barn, Holly Oaks, um, Linda Rawlinson, she said to me, she said, I think you need to watch this lesson. I think this might be something that will interest you. And all I could think of was, well, Dar doesn't suit Hunter. And all I had thought about was the Western pleasure horses, and I couldn't see him doing that. So I said, all right, I'll sit in on a lesson and I'll watch. And I watched her with this rider, and it, I, I was blown away with what, what, what I was seeing. So I approached Elaine and I asked her if she would be interested in coaching me. I explained that I had no Western tack, but I have my dressage tack and maybe we can work on that and and eventually you can let me know if he if Western dressage is something that would work for him. So we did a few lessons in the dressage tack and she could see that I was clearly in pain. And on our third lesson, she brought her Western dressage saddle, her harmony saddle. And she mm-hmm. said, put this on your horse. Just humor me. Put this on your horse and let's try your lesson in this. I have the photographs of that lesson, and you will not believe, A, the smile on my face or the way the horse moved. I have never been so comfortable in my life. And that's when I was sold on it. I'm doing this Western dressage. And we trained last year um, for about six months, I guess. We didn't do any showing except for virtual shows, which we offer here in Canada. Um, and it was this year that I said, you know what? I'm ready to go out there and try the sanction shows. And I, I'm not one to be a bragger, and I'm not bragging at all. <laughs> but my but... little Mennonite horse, Amish horse, and I, 
in our first season, our first in Canada currently. And I am so proud of him. So, oh, so proud. And you should well, be proud of great him story. Too, because that's quite the comeback, Sherry. Oh. That really is. Thank you. Now, I've, now we are ladies of my of my age are known as the Advil generation, and Advil <laughs> has helped a lot in the ride, and so has <laughs> and, and so has Voltaren. But the latest thing that I used, and I actually used this while I was at the Worlds, was the um, the KT tape. That oh yeah, is yeah, yeah, amazing, totally uh-huh. amazing stuff. So these these things help, but. I honestly, I, I left out one very important part. The day that I met Elaine Ward, I was giving up riding. I just, there was nothing that I could do. Um, the, the horse wasn't happy, and I wasn't happy. I couldn't stand the pain, and I honestly was quitting. If it wasn't for Elaine, mm-hmm. I wouldn't be riding right now. The main thing that I love about Western dressage are the people. I have never met to that. Yep. a better group of people. I'm telling you, there is, there's so much support. And I, it, even, even it, when I was down in Oklahoma, complete strangers. I had my own little U.S. cheering group that was up in the stands. I could not <laughs> believe it. Um, and, and all my people back home in Canada, they, they are so supportive. And I know that there's so many people that are out there that are thinking of giving up riding and you, you don't have to. There are alternatives. You find the right Western saddle. Try this. It works. It really, really yep. works. Well, we need to do a big shout out to Elaine. And we certainly and, do. Yeah, I'm just, I'm very happy that, you know, the two of you, your paths crossed, that you were able to come to Western Dressage, and it sounds like it has brought a lot of joy to you and you know, you've got a wonderful horse and a really great future together. This winter grooming tip is brought to you by Horseware Blankets. Joining us are two of the top grooms in the country of Enter Philip Dutton's groom, Emma Ford, and Cat Hill from World Class Grooming. Well, our Horseware gr- Winter Grooming Tip of the Week is brought to you by Cat. And Cat, this time we're talking about keeping your horses warm after a workout. And I think there always is some confusion exactly what to do here. I do think it's one of the most confusing things, and especially for people who don't necessarily have access to you know, beautiful indoor that attaches to stalls if you're having to go out in the wind or if you've been out for a trail ride. How exactly do you keep those, um, those horses warm from having their muscles seize up and get stiff and uncomfortable? Um, the biggest rule of thumb is simply to never leave a damp, warm horse uncovered. You want the horse to cool out slowly. It's actually the opposite of what we think of when we think of the summertime. You really want them to not go from warm and sweaty to freezing cold all at once. Um, Sweat evaporates, which cools them off, which is great in the summertime and works against us in the winter. So I actually leave my pack on until I have a fleece over their rear end. Um, and then I will remove my saddle and saddle pad, but I don't take my saddle and saddle pad off and then put it down and go get a fleece because I think it can catch a, a chill quite quickly when it's, when it's properly cold. The same thing, I actually try to use a quarter sheet at the beginnings and ends of my workout so that when I'm doing my walking cool down, when I'm on them or hand walking them, they have something over their quarters to keep them warm. I also try to layer blankets, especially uh, up here, in the chicken part through most days, if you're riding after work, are going to be um, close to freezing or below freezing. It's very hard to just have a fleece on them. They'll get cold. So what I'll actually do is uh, put a sports net or a, um, the Rambo Luxury Cooler is really nice. It's a dual layer that wicks or even the fleece-lined Ionic on, on top of them. And then I put another blanket over top of that to wick away any moisture and then have, you know, the protective layer from the wind on top of it. I actually don't walk forever. I let them stand, but I just make sure that they stay covered. And especially if you've got a limited amount of time 
after work and you got to get them dressed again before you head home, putting something underneath their regular blanket that helps wick will prevent them from getting chilled. So the horsewear blankets we uh, or fleeces that we'd recommend here are? are? Uh, the Rambo Sports Net um, as your base layer, and then the Rambo Luxury Cooler or a fleece-lined Ionic as your second layer. Well, thank you for that, Kat. Good advice. Where can people find more about what you do? We're on Facebook, uh, Instagram, and our website are all the same. It's World Class Grooming. Our website is worldclassgrooming.com, and then you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at just World Class Grooming. And don't forget the book, World Class Grooming. You can find that at the website as well. Great holiday gift. This tip was brought to you by Horseware. Have you ever wanted to own your own Rambo? Well, here's your chance. From October 3rd to November 23rd, receive $50 off any Rambo turnout blanket, including the Rambo Duo, the Optimo, the Original, the Supreme, and all the others in the Rambo turnout line. All you have to do is trade in your old turnout from any brand for a horse in need. Simply visit horseware.com slash trade for more information and fill out the form for the voucher you will need to get your $50 off. The complete list of retailers is at horseware.com slash trade as well. Open to U.S. and Canadian residents only. Go to horseware.com slash trade today and replace that blanket with all the holes for one of the best blankets on the market. The Rambo Turnout Outline. And joining us now, we have Lori Berger, Professor of Equine Studies at Vermont Tech and a current 2016 World Champion in Western Dressage. Hi, Lori. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you, Karen. It's great to be here. So, uh, before we get started, let's take a couple minutes. Tell us about Kalika. Uh, Kalixa, actually. Kalixa, okay. Kalixa. All right. (laughs) That's okay. It happens a lot. (laughs) We call her Lexi. It's a little easier around the barn. Well, Lexi is a 15-year-old American saddlebred cross. She is actually shire and thoroughbred on her mother's side. And uh, she gets her color from the Shire side, and she gets the the patterning from her dad, who was uh, a Pinto saddlebred. And she came from Ohio as a weanling, and I've had her since I got her as an unbroke four-year-old. Oh, my. So we've been and... together uh, a while now. And we started. And this out was with her first Western dressage show? Well, the, we started out with traditional dressage, and uh, she... Started out really strong and did really, really well. And then uh, she became ill after a bad response to a strangles vaccine, which caused uh, a nasal infection and resulted in trigeminal nerve sensitivity in her face. And going in the double bridle at the higher levels became extremely uncomfortable for her. And she became depressed and had a hard time performing. And uh, I could see that things were not going to continue to go well for us. And I love the horse, and I wanted to do something that was going to make her shine and make her happy and that she could be good at. And that led us to Western Dressage. So what kind of differences do you find between the disciplines since you started her with the classical dressage and have transitioned to Western Dressage? Well, it's certainly... To me, it's a bit more hands-off, even though both disciplines stress the importance of riding from back to front. You ride with a lot more contact, certainly, in traditional dressage competition. And going on a lighter contact and giving the horse more of an opportunity to hold herself and work in a frame in which she's more comfortable, that seems to make a difference for her. And... I find that it's a lot more, requires more subtlety, I think, as a horseman to work with the Western dressage because you're, you have a lighter contact and you're asking the horse to be a bit more responsible for their own self-carriage. And That's just probably the biggest difference, I find. And, and just so our listeners know, I mean, you're quite a successful competitive dressage rider. You're an FEI dressage rider. 
Well, actually, I, I I've not gone above fourth level in competition, so okay. I would love to make that claim, but I'm afraid <laughs> I can't. <laughs> but but in the interest of full disclosure, <laughs> uh, but. Uh, so the contact issue, uh, a lot of our listeners get a little confused with the idea of trot versus jog, lope versus canter. Did you find that to be a transition for you or, you know, was no, that? not at all. Okay. Uh, one of the other things that is often misunderstood, I think, as you point out, can be a point of confusion for many people. We're looking for a horse that's definitely clearly forward-thinking, and we're looking for uh, a clear two-beat jog-slash-trot, a clear three-beat lope-slash-canter, and we want to see a horse that's active with its joints, that's not dragging its feet, that has a nice clarity of rhythm and that's one of the things that I think sadly oftentimes in the Western pleasure world has been sacrificed, especially with the emphasis on slowness. We often lose rhythm. And one of the things that I think gives horses like Lexi an advantage uh, in the Western versus what she was doing in traditional dressage, she's more of a Baroque type horse and she mm-hmm. tends to move a little more upward with her in her gates rather than outward. And so working on the extended gates, especially when competing against traditional warm blood type horses, that was a real problem for us. That was a definite deficit at the higher levels. And uh, in the Western dressage, it's so much more about each individual horse and their way of moving and if they're correct for for their, their body type. I think it gives us more options than it does in the traditional dressage. Certainly when we look at competitive dressage today in general, and I'm talking definitely in generalities here, certain breeds, uh, Baroque-type breeds, um, Andalusians, Lusitanos, often don't score as well at the higher levels, I find, because they don't have those big ground-covering gates. And maybe for within their body type, they're covering a lot of ground, but it doesn't look that way compared to when we see mm-hmm. Hanoverians and warm, other warm-bloods out there doing that. And uh, it seems to me that Western dressage gives people with a less traditional dressage horses an opportunity to explore dressage and still remain true to classical principles. Well, you know, we've talked on the show before about Western dressage giving an opportunity to horses from the Western show world who are burnt out or were less than successful in their initial career choice, uh, another avenue to explore. Um, But I love the idea that this is also a venue for horses that didn't quite fit into the traditional dressage mode. Um, you know, the idea that giving them a job to do where they don't have to move as big, um, and they don't have to be, move into so much contact, uh, they can be a little freer and, you know, it, it, that emphasis on harmony and, and happiness and, and the well-being of the horse gives them a, a, another chance to shine. And I just think that's, that's a really cool thing, you know? Well, that certainly has been the case for us. I don't think my horse has ever been as happy as she is now. I used to be going to shows. She was tense. She was anxious. She would never say no. She never did anything inappropriate, but she could never really relax and enjoy being there. There was always a feeling of, of me having to push her through things, and that is so not the case now. Um, she goes in, you watch her from, from the back, uh, and you can just see her tail, which is, uh, your listeners might not realize this, but she's a very distinctive look to her. She looks a little like a skunk, and her tail is mostly <laughs> white with a black stripe down the middle, so we can always see that it's Lexi from the back, and it's very noticeable that she has this lovely soft movement in her tail when she's trotting down the long side and you look at her from the back and there's just so much relaxation there and that's something that uh, really shows the harmony 
of, of, of what I'm asking her to do and her happiness with being out there doing it and the difference. I feel like I have a whole new horse. And the last two years that we've been, been doing this, um, it's just changed my riding. It's changed my attitude towards the training. It's changed my goals. And it's given her a whole new job. And it's the most exciting thing of all when your horse wants to be there doing it with you. I think that is a beautiful thing. I think that's what we all want for our riding and f- that partnership with our horse. Um, kudos well, to you for pursuing it. it. Well, it's it's been a great learning experience for me. I think um, it's made me a better rider and a better horseman and certainly shown me the importance of really putting my horse's happiness, mental health, um, ahead of anything else, because if the horse isn't happy in the job, the performance can never be really exceptional. A lot of people, a lot of our listeners can relate to that idea of pursuing the career that's the best for their horse. And that's a message I'd really like to get across. My academic background is one of the things that convinced me to, to go in this direction. Uh, well, because I teach at Vermont Tech, I've been there for 11 years and I helped to develop the program, which is now a two-year associate's degree program, one of the classes that I teach involves a lot of equitation history because our emphasis in our program is that whether you are riding in a traditional hunt seat, dressage, or western, that correct riding is correct riding, and it all goes back to the early Spanish school. Mm. And we emphasize the importance of understanding the roots of good equitation, regardless of what direction we take it, but that good equitation is good equitation and solid training should be the same regardless of discipline. And it's something that unites the faculty and it unites our uh, equitation program. And knowing that, it gave me some other options to think about when I realized I needed to choose a different direction for my horse. And it didn't seem all that far-fetched to me to make that move from traditional dressage or traditional competitive dressage into the Western. I'd read a couple articles here and there, but mostly my experience of, of doing a lot of reading and research to present material to my students over the years really formed uh, a base for me to make that leap. This week's dressage training tip is brought to you by Total Saddle Fit, home of the shoulder relief girth at totalsaddlefit.com. And our Total Saddle Fit tip of the week is using turn on the forehand to improve the leg yield. So let's review our turn on the forehand, shall we? The aids are the inside rein flexes the horse's pole. The outside rein prevents the horse from walking forward, keeping the front legs on the same spot. The outside leg is your supporting leg, which is at the girth, and the inside leg is the active lateral moving leg, moving about three inches behind the girth, asking the horse to move his haunches around his front end. Turn on the forehand means the haunches move around the forehand. Um, Your seat should be in the middle of the saddle. Once your horse understands the aids for the turn on the forehand, you can use the turn on the forehand to improve the alignment and the lateral reach of your leg yield. So, to begin, track down the center line and begin leg yielding from the center line to the rail. When you reach the quarter line, halt and do a turn on the forehand off the inside leg 180 degrees to change direction. Finish by leg yielding back to the center line. Do this first in the walk, then in the trot. And make sure you work both directions. What you will find is the turn on the forehand increases the horse's responsiveness to the inside leg and helps increase the reach and the lateral movement of your leg yield. Total Saddle Fit has the cinch that you've been looking for for your Western dressage saddle. The shoulder relief cinch actually changes the position and angle of the billets to prevent the saddle tree from interfering with the shoulder. 
The center of the cinch is set forward to sit in the horse's natural girth groove, while the sides of the cinch are cut back to meet the billets two inches behind where the horse's natural girth groove lies. This brings the latigos from angling forward to becoming perpendicular to the ground, which reduces the saddle's tendency to be pulled forward into the shoulders. With horses that have shoulder interference without angled billets, it simply moves the billets back to keep the saddle further away from the shoulders. The secondary benefit to this shape is the cutback at the elbows. This gives more room for elbow movement as well and prevents galls in the elbow area. You can find the shoulder relief cinch at totalsaddlefit.com. That's totalsaddlefit.com. You can find show notes and links to today's guests on the website at dressageradio.com. Like us on Facebook? Just search for Dressage Radio Show. Follow us on Twitter at Horse Radio. And don't forget to check out all the other shows on the Horse Radio Network at horseradionetwork.com. You can access more information about me on my website, karenabatistadressage.com. And find Tim and at at www.trainingforlife.com. And remember, it's about the journey. Enjoy your ride.